Good morning. Like Greg said, it's uh, encouraging to have you join us this morning, worship with us. I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I wonder if you've ever questioned the goodness of God. I think it'd be safe to assume that that's a pretty common experience at one point or another. Have you ever wrestled with the sovereignty of God or doubted the things that the Bible claims to be true about God or maybe even just doubted the existence of God altogether? What does that look like for you? Those moments of questioning, doubting, wrestling. Are there certain times when those doubts have been more pronounced in your life? When you're honest, what aspects of life, this fleeting life under the sun, like we've been looking at in the book of Ecclesiastes, what aspects of this life stir up your most distressing doubts? What parts of life irritate your mind until they leave a blister of uncertainty. You ever experienced that? Or maybe you're, you know people who have gone through seasons or times of doubt or unbelief. It might be death. It might be physical pain. Some grief over loss in your life. It could be your own failing health. It could be Lack of victory over remaining sin in your life that bothers you. It could be that you look out at the world and you read headlines and you're distressed by corruption and injustice. And maybe you've wrestled with depression or despair. Some vocational dead end or just that the monotony of the rat race. Hold on to that, that thought. Once there were Two builders, one wise and the other foolish. The wise builder built his house on a rock, and when the stormy winds and the rains and the waves crashed against his home, it stood firm. You know this story. The foolish builder built his house on the sand, and when the storm pummeled his house, it came crashing down. We've been seeing in Ecclesiastes that you can delusionally spend your life trying to control the weather, so to speak. The raging winds, the torrential downpours, the blistering heat under the sun. Or you can step out of that miserable discontentment that comes from that kind of wishful thinking and you can trust God's gracious words and build your life on a foundation that's actually able to withstand all of these elements of life under the sun. And that's what God is giving you through the book of Ecclesiastes. It really is a precious gift. That's what God is offering you this morning through Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I invite you to follow along either in your Bible or the words will be on the screen. I'm going to read the whole chapter here. This is God's word. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. 
But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands when we hold your word precious promises. We hold a gift, your word, to illuminate, to shine light on the perplexing, the confusing, the vexing realities of life under the sun. Things that we look at and when we're honest, we would say, this is madness. How could this be? But you've given us your word so that we might have a firm foundation under our feet. And so, speak to us. Prepare us. Oh God, lay a foundation. For every person in this room this morning who receives your word with faith and trusts you, let your word be to them a foundation so that when these distressing realities of life under the sun come, because they will, when they come, may the house of their faith stand fast. Do that for us through Ecclesiastes 4 this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So my aim this morning is to convince you, to convince you, that means to to cause you, by God's grace, to believe something, to see and understand something. Specifically that the tragedies and the horrors and the injustices of life under the sun do not disprove, they don't threaten, they don't thwart God's good providence, but rather They magnify it. I want you, by God's grace, through his word, to be convinced of that truth. 
this text in Ecclesiastes 4 is for doubters. It's for people with questions. People who have ever taken an honest look at the real world and thought, what is going on here? How could God be good here? It's for doubters or for those who know doubters. So it's possible that you yourself this morning are not vexed by some doubt or some angst, but we believe that God has called every single one of us to be engaged in his mission of making and multiplying disciples, which means talking, having conversations with people who don't yet know Jesus. It means learning their stories, and part of learning their stories is learning what are the things that cause them to doubt. And so this text is for those of you who want to engage with doubters in gospel conversations, helping them through those dark doubts. So before we jump into the the heart of Ecclesiastes 4, I just want to recap. There are two ways, two ways to misread the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay? Uh, One way is to avoid the book altogether because it just, if we're honest, right, it just does not sound very Christian. There's not a whole lot in Ecclesiastes, if we're honest, that would fit on like, you know, positive and encouraging K-Love radio. Just not a lot of verses here. So I hated life. (laughs) I hated all my toil under the sun. That's not the positive and encouraging Christianity that so many of us think of. And so there are Christians who just avoid this book and go, Ecclesiastes says things that don't seem to fit with the rest of the Bible, so I'm not sure what to do with it. So avoiding it would be wrong. But it would also be wrong to just come to this book and embrace it like your favorite book in the Bible because you think that it condones your dark despair and your unbelieving angst and your bitterness of soul. So you just come to this and you say, yeah, I just hate the world and Ecclesiastes tells me it's okay. It doesn't quite say that. It it is honest. I mean, it's shockingly honest, isn't it? About life under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. 1.14, everything is vanity and striving after the wind under the sun. 2.11, there's nothing to be gained. Life is grievous. Work is dreadful toil. There's corruption where there should be justice. Man and beast, wise and foolish, rich and poor, all die, no matter what they do in their lives, under the sun. And we could go on and on. But make sure you're following along carefully. Solomon doesn't begin with the vanity of life under the sun, and then reason from all of these observations, all of these vain things under the sun, reasoning down into melancholy and angst and cynicism. He observes life, honestly. And then he does not smooth it over. He doesn't iron it out. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. But he concludes, get get this, make sure you don't miss this. He concludes with joy. So you see how it's easy to lose his argument in there. How could he be looking at the same things I'm looking at in this life? And then how does he get to joy from all of that? Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You can't even eat apart from the hand of God. 
you can't feel real pleasure apart from the hand of God. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Or we saw last week in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13. Again, his conclusion. I perceive that there is nothing better, nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Or 322, so I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And we could go on, I won't, but it's coming in Ecclesiastes 5, and Ecclesiastes 8, and Ecclesiastes 9. This same conclusion he keeps coming back to. So how in the world does he get there? And this is where many readers of Ecclesiastes fail to keep up with the argument and then miss the conclusion altogether. So remember last week, Ecclesiastes 3 the preacher asserted the providence of God, told us God is sovereign over the times and the seasons, all of it. And then he applied the providence of God, and Greg gave us Jerry Bridges' definition of God's providence. Hold that in your mind, God's constant care and his absolute rule over all creation for his glory and for the good of his people. So we saw God is sovereign over birth and Death, rain and drought, harvest and famine, laughter and sorrow, victory and defeat, and every other matter under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3 told us, God has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And yet there's mystery in all of this sovereignty of God. That same verse tells us God has done this so that man cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So we, we marvel at the mystery of it. We, we don't understand it. We don't pretend to know exactly why God does all the things that he does. But Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes 3.14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him, revere him, honor him, trust him. And then in Ecclesiastes 3.16, the preacher began to vindicate the providence of God from one of the most pervasive, problematic objections to God's sovereignty altogether, which is the problem of evil. If God is sovereign, then why is it that when I look under the sun, in the place of justice, I see wickedness? And in the place of righteousness, I see wickedness? He began to answer that. So I'm backing up to chapter 3 to take a running start at chapter 4 because chapter 4 just carries on that train of, start, uh, train of thought that started back in chapter 3, vindicating the providence of God by answering objections to it. That's what's going on here. Ecclesiastes 4 takes an honest look at four more painful, frustrating, confusing realities of life under the sun which means it's instructive for us in learning how to deal with doubts, whether they are our own or the doubts of those around us. So how does Ecclesiastes 4 help us to deal with doubts and objections about the providence and the goodness of God? First, it, it tells you to face your doubts. Face them. God gives you permission to look honestly at life's most vexing atrocities. 
The preacher's eyes are wide open as he lives his life under the sun. He is, as Greg said last week, he's he's a detective of divinity. He is an astute observer. Verse 1, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Verse 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Verse 7, again, I saw another vanity under the sun. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun. He is looking at life under the sun honestly, and he wants you to join him and see it. He says in verse 1, after he says that he saw the oppression, he says, behold, that's an invitation. Come, look at this. And in particular, look at it and feel something. Be moved by this. Don't just gloss over this. Behold the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. He's moved by the things that he sees. And he invites you to see what he sees and be affected by it. Ecclesiastes teaches that the way to joy is not to be some Pollyanna. Or some ostrich with your head buried in the sand. Just don't worry. Be happy. Try to ignore all the realities of life and just go on smiling. Hakuna Matata. No worries for the rest of our days. No, Ecclesiastes tells you, you can take an honest look at real life. And since God's word doesn't turn a blind eye to these things, then you can be sure that God understands the pain of life and That means God can handle your questions. The preacher raises four of them. His first objection is that oppression is overpowering. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, verses 1 through 3. And he looks and he notices wherever there's oppression, power is on the side of the oppressors. Maybe it's the bureaucracy, they've got legal power, the courts are corrupt, they've got money, whatever it is, they've got the ability to hold other human beings under their thumb for their own purposes. And it's so distressing to him that he says, the Hebrew literally is, so I congratulated the dead. (laughs) Congratulations, you escaped all of this. Happy are the dead, and even happier are those who haven't even been born to see any of it, because this is distressing if we're honest, and it's problematic. Psalm 10 gives voice to this kind of lament when the psalmist prays, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then he talks about the oppressor this way, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The preacher sees that. Everywhere there's oppression, there is someone who thinks, there's no God above me. I am God. I will do whatever I please. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, God. Out of his sight, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And the faithful Look at this and wonder. God, it seems like he's right. It seems like your judgments are abstract and distant. Because look how rich he is. Look how successful he is. Look how long this oppression goes on. And so the psalmist prays, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? 
Don't let him get away with this like he has for years and years. So that's one objection. But he moves quickly on. Verses 4 through 6. Work is wearisome. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. They're pretty accurate observation. The economy runs on envy. And in some sense that's true whether the economy is capitalistic or socialistic. Envy is deeply rooted in human hearts. So the ESV says all toil and skill in work spring up from man's envy. You see other people, you envy what they have, and that's why you work hard. And that's why you try to improve your own skill, because you want what they have. The King James translates this, people work hard and they succeed, and then everyone else envies them. The Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous, but I think both are just saying the same thing, right? Wherever people succeed, you will find people who envy them. And that's a vanity. And wherever you find people working hard, chances are good that the the driving motive of their heart is envy. Both of those things are true, and they're both bad. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. I mean, you just, just read the newspapers and see the envy that grips people. God, take from the rich. They've got too much. How dare they have so much success? So the preacher looks out and he says, you can work your fingers down to the bone from toil on the outside because you envy somebody else. And all the while your bones are rotting from the inside out because of envy inside of you. What are we supposed to do with all of this? So then he turns to laziness. Maybe instead of working like that, maybe we should just not work. But he warns us, laziness is not an alternative. It's equally self-destructive. In fact, it's cannibalistic. The fool folds his hand and he eats his own flesh. Verse 5. Folds his hands. It's It's talking about laziness. The sluggard folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Can't even put food into his mouth. He's too lazy. He consumes all that he has because of his laziness. If you don't work, all you'll have to eat is your own flesh. So that's not going to do. He moves on to his third objection. Life is lonely, verses 7 through 12. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. Yet he never stops in the middle of all his hard work to ask, who am I saving this up for? Where's this all going when I die? Woe to him who is alone, he says in verse 10. Loneliness is a reality. There are two possibilities. It could be unwelcome loneliness, like you don't want to be lonely, but you just are because you don't have anybody else around. Or it could be intentional isolation. Some people choose to isolate themselves from others. And both of those can raise questions and doubts about the goodness of God. He goes on to his fourth objection, verses 13 through 16. Fame is, is fleeting. He, he tells this little mini narrative, a, a rags to riches story about an old king who grew stubborn and unpopular, and he's replaced by this young prodigy, this rising star who has this huge following. I mean, that, that plot line is as familiar as, you know, every chick flick has the same plot line. You know exactly what's coming. 
um, crime dramas. Say, if you've seen one, you, you know how it's going to go. Um, rags to riches story. Here comes this, the, the rookie who elbows out the, the veteran. And he looks at it and says, and you know what? In a few years, nobody's even going to remember that guy. Because the world just keeps going. Surely this also is vanity. So those are the objections. We, we want freedom, but the world's full of heartbreaking oppression. We want some meaningful work, but it's, it's wearisome and laziness is no better. We long for relationships, but life is lonely for a lot of people. We want to live forever, or at least be remembered for something, but death is coming and any fame we actually attain is just fleeting. So what do you do with doubts like these? What do you do if one of those or all of those or some doubt other than one of these troubles your soul? So you take an honest look at it, first of all. Second, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Your doubts are actually just alternate beliefs. I get that from Tim Keller. He's been so helpful to me in that insight. Doubts are beliefs. You can't doubt belief A unless you stand firmly on belief B. You have to know something in order to doubt something else. So take a look at what you're standing on when you doubt something. If there is no God, if all of these things are stacked up like some argument against God, against his providence, against his sovereignty, if there is no God, then every complaint, every objection, every doubt is itself, in the end, utterly meaningless. The unbeliever reasons from these vanities, these strivings after the wind, to the conclusion, God is not good, or God doesn't even exist. If there was a God, he would never bother me. If there was a God, there would ne never be anything in this life that bothers me. But rather than doubting God, why not question your belief that there would never be anything that bothers you if there was a God? That's a belief. And the believer realizes that unless God exists, he can't actually lament anything. To put it another way, as, as Doug Wilson has pointed out, if you want to slap God on the face, you have to climb up on his lap to do it. You have to start with God. You have to assume God exists in order to insult him. You have to climb onto his lap to slap him in the face. Or the way that I picture it, you know those cartoon characters who are out on the branch, maybe like Wile E. Coyote, out on the branch sawing it off, but they're on the wrong side. And so as soon as they saw off that branch, they're dropping with it. If you use these real vanities under the sun to argue against God, you find out that you are free-falling and your objection against God is free-falling. There's no such thing as oppression. You can't lament oppression if there's no God above. The universe does not care who hurt your feelings. And that's all it comes down to if there's no God. You can't be mistreated unless there's some objective standard that defines how human beings ought to be treated. And it's got to be more meaningful than just what you think. Because who cares? If there's no God above, then there is no oppression below. But there is a God. That's clear from the preacher in Ecclesiastes. There is a God. There is a day of judgment. He said that in chapter 3. And that means oppression is real and it's lamentable. You actually have a reason to feel real lament. Because 
oppression is real because God, because we start there. You can't lament the frustration of toil or the evil of envy or the folly of laziness if there's no God above. Why would we expect that there would be such a thing as meaningful work if we lived in a totally random, accidental universe? Why do we so desperately long for purpose? Purpose in an accidental world? We can't lament the frustration of toil unless God exists. One grandson of Holocaust survivors describes how the Nazis forced Jews into pointless and torturous labor. He writes, my grandparents recounted stories of digging up boulders and carrying them from one side of the concentration camp to the other, only to have to to move them back to the other side of camp the next day. Back and forth, back and forth. And he calls it pointless and torturous. Why is pointless labor the same as torturous labor? I mean, machines could do pointless work over and over and over and over and never lament anything. They don't have a soul. They don't have a mind to lament it. But as humans, we find it's got to have a point or else it drives us crazy. And that tells us something about this life under the sun and how it was meant to be. We know from God's word, work isn't the curse. Futile work is the curse in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. God said to Adam, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Since there is a God, you were made for meaningful work. And since Adam sinned, work under the sun has actually, really, and lamentably involved wearisome toil. Same with loneliness. If there's no God, I mean, just think of the, the predominant materialistic, atheistic worldview. There's nothing more to you than just cells, matter, protoplasm, chemicals. In that case, what you think is love for your husband or your wife, for your son or your daughter, for your mother, your father, it's just chemicals. Love is nothing more than chemical. It's meaningless. And so if loneliness causes you to reject God, you actually lose the ability to have meaningful loneliness because love isn't even a thing. It's just chemicals. But there's a God and he made you for meaningful relationships. And so that loneliness is real and it's lamentable. Same with our longing for something more than this tragic, brief life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 told us God put eternity into our hearts. That's why the thought of living such a short life just drives us crazy. I mean, there's nothing more natural than death. It happens all the time, and yet every time it happens, we feel this. Why is this so unnatural? It's real, and it's lamentable. Life might be a vapor, but it's a real vapor. Ecclesiastes affirms all these things are real. And C.S. Lewis, I love this quote. He says, the, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, turns out there's such a thing as water. 
Men feel sexual desire, and it turns out there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Ecclesiastes does not come to the conclusion that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest, to point you to the real thing. And if that is so, then I must take care, Lewis says. On the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. Ecclesiastes doesn't leave us saying, don't care about this life. He he leaves us saying, you know what? Go ahead and eat and drink because that's what God has given you. So we don't despise these earthly things on the one hand. But on the other, we must never mistake them for that something else of which they are only a kind of copy, a kind of echo, a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. I love that. That's wise. So face your doubts. But then follow the preacher's argument. You don't don't get to nod your head in agreement with him when he's lamenting everything wrong in the world and then stubbornly refuse to join him when he comes to his conclusion. There's nothing better than to eat And drink and be joyful as long as you live because that's God's gift to you. So where does that leave us? I told you my aim was to convince you that the injustices under the sun do not disprove God's good providence, but actually magnify it. The only way to live under the sun in a world where all these things are real is to live by faith. If joy and food and drink and pleasure in toil is God's gift. How do you get that? Do you have that gift? Have you received that from God? You, you get that by faith. So you open your eyes and you, you look around. You behold the tears of the oppressed. Pay attention to how exhausting and how monotonous the grind of the rat race can feel. Don't, don't numb yourself to it with Netflix and Instagram. Pay attention. Don't numb yourself with sin and addiction to pornography. Let yourself feel the reality of this life. Feel the depth of your desire for community, for meaningful relationships. Contemplate that incessant longing you have to live life that's more than just some empty, fleeting thing. Those things are not arguments against God's providence. Those are indelible evidences that are just engraved on our hearts for God's existence, for his goodness, so that we might fear before him. So the question is, will you trust him? That's how you receive this gift and every other gift that God gives. The preacher asks in this chapter probing questions, but he doesn't leave us in despair. He keeps coming back to these nothing better or or better than statements. All four of these objections, for each of them, he says, so I saw that this is better than that. So I saw that it's better to have two than one. But all of those come under the overarching banner from chapter three. There's nothing better than the gift of God. We try to make the best 
of what we have in this life, but there is nothing better than the gift of God. It's better to be dead or not yet born than to be oppressed. But guess what? You're alive, so keep living anyway. It's better to have a little quietness than a lot of toil. Restless work and laziness are going to both destroy you in the end, so cultivate contentment and work anyway. People are going to let you down, but you can't go it alone, so keep putting yourself out there anyway, building relationships. It's better to start off poor and end well than to start off well and end poorly. And your life might be fleeting, but seek to finish well anyway. How do you get that gift to do those things? It's by faith, and it's, it's through Christ. Solomon says repeatedly, In this chapter, I saw another vanity. I saw another vanity under the sun. But he never lived to see or hear about the greatest enigma, the most distressing dilemma that ever happened under the sun. That the eternal Son of God would take on human flesh and bear your sins in his body on the tree and die so that you might live. Who can make sense of that? If there has ever been something perplexing on earth, it was that. His brief life snuffed out, a vapor, a chasing after the wind. Jesus went through all of these things in this chapter. He was oppressed by powerful and corrupt people. He experienced weariness. He was abandoned by friends and left alone in his greatest hour of need. He knew how fickle popularity was. Great crowd of people surrounding him. Hosanna, the king. And a week later, yelling, crucify him. Jesus lived this vanity under the sun. And because Jesus lived this vanity, then Jesus is our hope. If you are oppressed or mistreated, there is one to comfort. It's Christ who takes away your sins. If you are weary, there is hope. He says to you, come to me and rest. If you're lonely, Christ is your companion. When you contemplate how brief your life is, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for giving us hope. Thank you that you have not glossed over these things, but you entered into them, that you comfort us not by pretending they're not real, but by stepping into our pain and redeeming it taking our own sin on your own body so that we might live. We want the gift, oh God, that you give, which is joy in the midst of this real life under the sun. So help us where there's doubt and unbelief in our hearts. Help us and empower us by your spirit to go on speaking your word as witnesses boldly to those around us who have doubts and questions. 
We pray for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen.